Welcome to the podcast. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, inviting you to listen to a new series focused on societal changes wrought by COVID-19. It's produced by our good friends at the Massing Polling Group. Enjoy the show. If you're a lover of the performing arts anywhere near Boston, chances are you know the Wang Theater. Originally opened in 1925, it's a fixture of the Boston cultural scene. It holds one of the top five largest stages in the country, and on any given night could be filled by up to 3,500 people. But not on this particular night. This night, December 4th, 2020, a single light is all that lit the Wang Theater stage in Boston. It's called the ghost light. When everyone leaves, the ghost light comes on, a single standing light on the stage. The legend is that it protects the theater from bad luck and ghosts. During COVID, it kept the theater from going dark during a year with almost no live shows. Standing in front of the ghost light this night was singer and songwriter Mark Arelli and a bassist, making music in an empty theater. The Wang Theater held a series of these ghost light performances during COVID. An artist would perform beside the light to a vacant theater, Elsewhere, an audience of thousands spread across miles, tuned in online from their individual homes. This series was the only event happening at the Wang. It was their way of keeping art alive. Now, arts organizations like the Wang Theater are looking toward reopening. The arts world is one of many parts of life in Massachusetts that will face big changes this year. And as we rebuild, we're reckoning with the ghosts of a traumatic year. COVID took a lot from us. It took jobs, entire businesses, lifelong dreams. It fractured relationships. For many, it took loved ones. It upended how we think about socialization, family, safety, education, work, travel, even love. It also opened the door for new things, new thinking, new ways of being. And now states are reopening, with many people flooding back into the places they've missed over the past year. But just as many are taking small, careful steps into this new and unfamiliar Massachusetts. Across the state, people are thinking about what they lost and how to rebuild smarter, safer, better. As we look across sectors that make up the Commonwealth, what will change? What happens when you reboot a whole state? I'm Libby Gormley, and this is Mass Reboot, a series about restarting after COVID-19 and what we lost along the way. Join me, Steve Cazella, and Jennifer Smith, as each week we explore a sector of Massachusetts that's reopening, rebuilding, or reimagining after the devastation of the pandemic. This is episode one, art. Hi listeners, Libby here. I'm joined by my co-hosts. Jennifer Smith. Hey folks. And Steve Cazella. Hello who you may recognize from The Horse Race, a weekly podcast about Massachusetts politics and policy. This summer series is similar to The Horse Race in that it is a weekly dive into Massachusetts happenings, but it's different in that it won't be focused only on politics. But don't worry if you're into politics, because everything is political. Every sector that we tackle spent at least part of the year waiting for Beacon Hill or the federal government to give it some direction. Also, if you're here just for the polling, we've got that too. Libby and I work at the Massing Polling Group, and we'll be using surveys and polls to explore what's happening across the state. And Jen, of course, is a longtime journalist in Boston. 
That's right. And we're keeping our eyes in this series trained on Massachusetts and its reopening. Each week, we look at a different facet of Massachusetts society and ask, how is it restarting? So we'll look at things like sports, education, government, and today, art. So, Steve, Jen, you ready? Let's do it. Let's go. The COVID-19 crisis decimated arts organizations. Americans for the Arts has been tracking the losses. As of the last update, nonprofit arts and culture organizations nationally have lost a collective $17.3 billion. Here in Massachusetts, things have also been rough. Michael Bobbitt is executive director of the Massachusetts Cultural Council. An MCC report saw a staggering loss of jobs in arts and culture throughout Massachusetts after COVID hit. So nearly half of the jobs that we reported the year before had been wiped away because of COVID. That's um, a massive, a massive hit to the field. Take even a huge arts organization that's super well-resourced, like the Box Center, which houses the Wang Theater we talked about at the beginning. They were hurting. They still are hurting. Steve and I met up with Joe Spaulding at his office in the Box Center. Okay, so I just figured if you wouldn't mind, we'll just do it right in here. Great, sure. everybody's vaccinated. Yes. That's right. Like most places, things at the Box Center were normal in early March. Everything was business as usual. But then, March 12th, they announced the doors were closing. Audiences stayed home. Live theater just stopped. Joe had to lay off more than 500 employees. He slashed his administrative staff from 55 to 15. It was the most excruciatingly painful um, uh, uh, part of my career. One thing making it even harder, he was out of state at the time and had just come down with COVID-19. Steve, when we were thinking about this episode, you said we had to talk to Joe Spaulding. Why was that? Well, I talked to him back last April, so April 2020, when all of this was sort of brand new, and he was one of the first ones who really got it. We were all thinking back then that this coronavirus thing, you know, the lockdowns and so forth, would probably be over in a few weeks, maybe a few months. We did a poll back then, and only 17% of residents statewide thought that the disruption would be four months or more back then. Joe was like, no, 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 no. We're not going to be reopening until at least the middle of 2021, which at the time seemed impossibly pessimistic and far away. And it turns out he was right. He knew even then that the crisis wouldn't be over until we got a vaccine. And the vaccine was a long way off. So far away, in fact, he said he didn't know if his organization could hold out. I thought this was going to even linger longer and... Um, it was very depressing, okay? It was very depressing. In fact, I felt at times that we may not come back. We, we won't make it. While the pandemic had everything shut down, lots of businesses could open in some other way or open at a reduced capacity. Joe made it clear that was never on the table for the Wang. We could never run a, a show at 25% occupancy or 50% occupancy. We had to be 100%. And even when capacity did open up in April 2021, there was another added wrinkle for Joe and the theater. I'll never forget when the governor said to me, well, geez, you now can open and up to 250 people. And then pretty about an hour or two afterwards, uh, chief of staff called back and said, I'm terribly sorry, I forgot to tell you, you just can't sing. 
Well, I'm in the entertainment business. How am I going to open? What am I going to do? They've survived, thanks to an influx of donations from individuals during COVID. But ticket sales have been zero. As Joe says, they're reaching 19 months of no earned income. Meanwhile, their operating budget, around 40 to $45 million. Thinking about waiting until October to start making any earned income at all, it stresses Joe out. So thank God I'm actually a, uh, a, a not-for-profit. I can raise money to help stay alive, but it's getting pretty darn tough. And to just have another five months of no income, it's going to be very difficult. And it, it, you know, I'm up at nights, but we have survived. For every arts giant like the Box Center, there's a handful of independent, community-based arts organizations as well. How did they fare during the pandemic? We'll get into all of that and more after this break. Today's episode of Mass Reboot is sponsored by our good friends at Rasky Partners. They're a longtime supporter of ours and a nationally recognized government affairs and communications firm. For over 30 years, the team at Rasky has worked with all types of organizations, large and small, helping each one reach their business objectives through advocacy and storytelling. Find out more at rasky.com. That's R-A-S-K-Y.com. Welcome back. We're moving now from downtown to the heart of Fields Corner in Dorchester. Jen, you spoke with someone at the Dorchester Art Project. What did you find out? That's right. I spoke with Emma Levitt, the Director of Communications and Public Arts Projects at the Dorchester Art Project. It's a community artist collective focused on supporting local artists and artists of color. Before the pandemic, things were looking really, really good for these artists and this program. In 2019, they were actually named Boston's Best Intimate Live Music Venue by the Boston Music Awards. But then, as we know, things took a turn. We had some amazing shows lined up for 2020. And yeah, it really just all came to a crashing halt. (laughs) It really did. So we ended up just having to cancel um, the majority of the programming that we had lined up for 2020. Like other arts organizations, they explored more digital platforms for distributing their art like live streams and moving their community arts paper online. But the structure, composition, and audience of the art project meant that some obvious solutions weren't always the right ones. A majority of their resident artists are Dorchester natives or current residents, and three quarters are people of color. Something that we're really aware of that a lot of arts administrators um, aren't is sort of just like, we call it the digital divide which is that, um, you know, we serve um, a lot of low-income communities, black and brown communities, and it's just not a given that people even have reliable internet access or computers um, that can handle, you know, streaming. So um, when everything kind of pivoted to streaming and, you know, digital spaces, we just, we weren't really on board with that (laughs) because we knew that so many people um, just, it wasn't accessible. They maintained some in-person elements to their work, holding outdoor concerts that could also be live-streamed, and doing other outdoor arts projects like murals, socially distanced, of course, while they couldn't be doing their work inside. But we weren't just grappling with the pandemic last year, though that would have been enough on its own. 
The summer was full of protests calling for justice after the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and too many others. The 2020 presidential election was ongoing, and it was vicious. The Dorchester Art Project saw an opportunity. They had every resource in their arsenal to organize as a community, and they couldn't use those tools for shared arts the way they usually did. So they turned to activism. We really just full-scale pivoted to the movement, and, um, you know, it's actually a lot of people don't realize how intertwined art and activism is. The Dorchester Arts Project describes itself as kind of DIY-spirited here. They're adaptable, so they adapted. You know, organizing protests and um, helping to facilitate them is really essentially the same skill set. <laughs> you know, activists are poets, are artists, um, and we just um, pivoted to supporting them. But so much of art is communal. Gathering at a gallery, at a concert, in a performance space, just being with other artists. 2020 suddenly required much more finessing to accomplish that, if it was even possible. There was a lot of hopelessness and confusion. Um, and I mean, community is just so important to an artist. That's our main kind of bread and butter. That's what that's what gives our lives meaning and our art meaning. Um, so I think just the inability to really get together um, and celebrate each other and share with each other was actually super damaging and insidious um, and confusing for artists, um, for all types of artists. Um, and I think we're honestly still recovering from it. The art sector has one major thing going for it. The artists. This is their calling even when it isn't secure. Emma is a muralist and she felt this personally. I mean, artists, you know, we're sort of just compelled <laughs> to this creation and this creation work. And, um, you know, the sense is really that we don't really have a choice of whether we're going to do it or not. <laughs> it's kind of just like it's going to happen somehow. The Dorchester Art Project and the Box Center are just two of thousands of arts organizations across the state that suffered losses this year. Michael Bobbitt, who we heard from earlier in the episode, is a director, choreographer, and playwright, as well as the executive director of the Massachusetts Cultural Council. All of Massachusetts is experiencing what he describes as a cultural depression. The most recent survey from the MCC pegged the art sector's lost revenue at a staggering $588 million just in Massachusetts. Michael says it could be twice that high. I don't know if we even know what the full impact is uh, because it's it's so vast and it's so large and every single industry has been hit. With venues shuttered and artists confined to their homes, other sectors suffered as well. When in-person school stopped, so did in-school arts performances and field trips to cultural organizations. The impacts were more widespread than you might expect. You know, when you go see a play or a concert or a go to the museum, you might get your hair done or your nails done. You might go to dinner with friends. You probably are driving or parking or putting gas in your car. Um, you may be after the, after the performance or the show, go to get a drink. And of course, there's the impact on the artists themselves. The year before COVID, MCC reported 71,000 jobs in arts and culture in Massachusetts. By March of this year, that number had dropped to 30,000. Emma told me when COVID wiped away the gig opportunities, it exposed just how untenable the system is on a massive scale. 
She saw that firsthand in the work she does. You know, I think even though there was a lot that was taken away from us in the pandemic, um, there's also a lot that we gained in awareness of how unstable um, things are, especially in the creative economy, you know, how vulnerable our cultural workers and gig workers are and how much how much we were doing (laughs) kind of, um, you know, how hard we were working and grinding and how unsustainable that is. Getting the arts and culture sector to thrive once again requires money. Michael Bobbitt says cash flow needs to come from a few sources. Uh, it really depends on government support. It, it depends on um, philanthropic support, corporate support, community support, um, and consumerism. Let's start with that first one, government support. The Box Center received a rush of funds from private donors, which helped sustain them. But programs intended to help organizations weather the pandemic fell short. The Shuttered Venue Operators Grant, or SVOG, passed the U.S. House and Senate in December. It promised a total of $16 billion would be distributed throughout the country to closed venues. But Michael Bobbitt knows that for many small operators, applying for SVOG is a big hurdle. So there are organizations that just don't have the bandwidth. If you think about some of the small community arts organizations, especially some of our BIPOC organizations where the executive director is also choreographing the dances and cleaning the bathrooms and writing all the reports and and doing all the fundraising. Does she have time to do a a 30-page application? And even for those that did manage to complete the paperwork, the rollout has been extremely slow. Slow enough that even U.S. senators are starting to take notice. Senators John Cornyn and Amy Klobuchar on June 21st called on the Small Business Administration to speed up the grant distribution process. In the meantime, operators like Joe Spaulding are anxiously waiting. All right, but I'm now ramping up with no income. And many of my sisters and brothers out there, if you don't give them the incomes now, they can't reopen even though they could reopen. They don't have any money. The Paycheck Protection Program also didn't help either the Box Center or the Art Project. For Joe Spaulding, it made matters worse. To get a PPP loan forgiven, you had to keep your staff. But the Box Center had already laid them off. So what could have been a huge help has instead turned into a loan they now have to repay. Meanwhile, Emma told me that the Dorchester Art Project and Brain Arts, which operates it, weren't eligible for PPP because of both the size of their staff and their nonprofit status. She said they never felt like they could rely on the city or state alone. So even before the pandemic, they had a strong community-based fundraising structure. And then when COVID hit, the nonprofit stayed focused on keeping the lights on and helping their resident artists stay afloat. The first thing they did was launch a crowdfunding campaign in their community that raised $17,000. We just were really uncertain about what the future was, but we knew that we had to take care of like our immediate, um, you know, community. So a lot of that went into like rent relief for our tenants, um, which a lot of our tenants said it was the only like relief that they received um, for their art practice. For the art project, it was a rocky start during the worst of the pandemic, and community fundraising was all they had until late-year grants from the city of Boston and the Massachusetts Cultural Council came through. Emma's experience with PPP is a common one across the country. 
smaller venues are struggling more than larger ones. One impact of this is that the losses have been deeper among venues owned and operated by people of color. Americans for the Arts has been tracking nationwide impacts of COVID since it started. According to their national survey, organizations owned or operated by people of color are more likely to report that they currently lack the funds they need to return to in-person programming. As Michael explains, rebooting the arts and culture sector in an equitable fashion requires investment, particularly in disproportionately impacted communities. Well, the simple answer is that we should take care of those who need it the most. We can go back and look at historical underfunding. Perhaps those communities have been hit harder because we just haven't supported them as much. And so they haven't been able to build the the competencies or build the staff or build the patron base or their donor base to have the kind of funding that a larger, um, a larger white organization has. So in my simple answer, I would just say we have to invest in communities that need it the most. Bringing back the arts and culture sector also requires literally filling arts venues to their full capacities. But that leaves the question, how many people are willing to go back? And when? We at the Massing Polling Group asked that question in a poll for this episode. Only 44% of the state's residents said they would feel safe seeing a show in a crowded theater. Maybe even more troubling for entertainment venues is that older people feel even less safe. And older people are a huge part of the audience for many kinds of shows. The poll was conducted in late May, so as more and more people get vaccinated, that number could increase. And for venue operators like Joe at the Box Center, who depend on full theaters, hopefully it does. Just as many artsgoers are cautious, so too are many of the art makers. Emma and her team members at the Art Project are taking a careful approach to their reopening. Given our awareness that the COVID pandemic affected, like, you know, the Black and immigrant community a lot more, um, which is, you know, a huge part of our community. We just, we weren't pushing to, um, to really open as soon as we can or, you know, take as much space as we need. Um, we were really just really cautious with it. And I think we still are. We're still wearing masks inside. Um, and yeah, just kind of um, playing it by ear. She said the virus changed her and her team's way of thinking about safety. Their upstairs space, as she calls it, is similar to a typical office space. Small rooms, not much ventilation. Before COVID, you would have never thought of that as being like, you know, an unsafe place or something like that. But I think um, we're just going to always be aware of, you know, how a virus like this can work. Now, Emma says, they're looking to move their events to their new downstairs space. One huge positive change for the organization actually came when they were able to negotiate a lease for the long vacant commercial spot below them, mid-pandemic. It's bigger, and it has a lot more ventilation. Joe Spaulding and the Box Center have also implemented safety precautions in the Wang Theater. Now, they're looking ahead to October when shows start back up again. After 15 months without any live performances, the fall still feels like a long way away. But with performing art spaces, the ramp up to opening night requires a lot of preparation. I'm in the live touring business, and you just don't mount a tour uh, when you flick the light switch on and say, <clears throat> let's go back to work and being in what you're doing. It's going to take and ramp up a five or six months to decide uh, what's going to happen uh, and how are you going to actually be able to 
uh, a do a show. Things are ramping up, slowly but surely, and in-person arts will return. But as the reboot begins, a question lingers. How will the art space change in the wake of a racial reckoning? What content gets funded, gets made? Who makes it, who funds it, who consumes it? Michael says the way the art space is set up now mostly serves one particular demographic. The problem that we have, maybe in this country, but also in many of our organizations, is that oftentimes the decision makers are all homogenous. They represent one type of person, typically white and most often male. And so their perspectives are skewed to what they know. Even if they are fiercely anti-racist, they still don't have the right perspectives. And so often those policies are really taking care of people that look like them. And so one of the things you have to do is make sure that any decisions that affect the group of people you're trying to serve, you have diversity of decision makers. He says making the art space a more inclusive and diverse one is something that will demand a fundamental change to current power structures. The other thing, too, is just to to recognize that, to me, diversity is good for business, that if you are a predominantly white institution, you were designed to be that way. It didn't happen by accident. It was designed by white people for white people. And so if you want to change your model and and to... be an organization that is predominantly multicultural, you have to go back and relook at your business model and make sure that there are multicultural people supporting a new multicultural business model. It's not going to happen just by a couple of programs and a couple of policies. It really requires a, a massive um, culture shift and a business model shift. Like Michael says, that change will take time, effort, and investment. It's not right around the corner. And neither is the reopening of the art space in general. But the gears are beginning to turn. There were signs of life when Steve and I were at the Wang Theater. They were setting up for their annual board of directors meeting. In 2020, it was completely remote. This year, though, most of the board was coming in person. But they can't wait to get here. So, yeah, it's very exciting to see them in person after all this time. This is Ann Taylor, senior executive assistant at the Box Center. The meeting was to be held on stage, so people were setting up and getting ready. Some of our help, it's their second day back. Oh, wow. I know. I miss these guys. <laughs> hey, Donnie. Anne spotted a coworker who she hadn't seen since before COVID. She walked over to give him a hug. It's months yet before the curtain will rise on big shows. But the setup for the board meeting felt like a first step toward the return to normalcy. Like... The reboot is underway. For the people on the stage, backstage, and for eager audiences waiting for art to return, that's welcome news. That's it for this week's episode. Next week, we're talking about home. How has the concept of home changed in the last year? What's it been like trying to find a home in Boston and trying to keep one? That's next time on Mass Reboot. Mass Reboot is a production of the Mass Inc. Polling Group in association with Commonwealth Magazine. It's produced by Steve Cazella, Jennifer Smith, and me, Libby Gormley. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. To help us make more episodes, donate at patreon.com slash mass underscore reboot. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.